Happy Halloween, folks. Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac in the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. We have a packed episode for all of you today. For starters, we will be taking a look at select films from one of Italian horror's greatest icons, Dario Argento. The titles we will be looking at include Deep Red, Suspiria, Tenebre, and Sleepless. There will also be a special Halloween edition of The Three Tenors where John and I go through our lists for the top 10 slasher films. Closing out the show will be a special interview with filmmakers Michael Deserto and Russell Maggio to celebrate the 20th anniversary of their documentary, Chiller, Three Days of Peace, Love, and Gore. And to round out the program, I have another giveaway from the kind folks at Paramount Pictures. Before we go into the movies, let's look at the man himself. Dario Argento was born in Rome, Italy on September 7, 1940. His mother was a photographer, while his father was a prominent Sicilian film producer. Dario started out as a film critic while still in high school. He opted being a columnist for a local newspaper instead of attending college. While working at the newspaper, he also worked as a screenwriter. One of his early credits was assisting with the story for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. In 1970, Argento made his directorial debut with The Bird with Crystal Plumage, the first of his Giallo Animal trilogy, which continued with Cat of Nine Tales and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. After these films, he took a break to work in television and even made a comedy, The Five Days. In 1975, he made a roaring comeback to the Giallo genre with Deep Red, a.k.a. Profondo Rosso. Now let's dive into the movies... Spoilers ahead. We got movies!
Helga Ullman is a psychic as part of a lecture by Professor Giordani. Helga experiences a disturbance as she senses someone guilty of committing murders. The person promptly leaves the auditorium, which helps Ullman to recompose herself. Later, she confides in Giordani that she can identify the person from the audience, all while being stalked by the stranger. Later that night, Helga is attacked by the stranger in her apartment. Marcus Daly, a musician, happens to witness the crime. He rushes to Helga's rescue. As Marcus walks through her apartment, he sees various paintings. He finds Helga's body and sets her on the floor, her neck pierced by glass from a broken window. While being questioned by the police, Marcus thinks something from the apartment is missing, yet he can't place what. The questioning is interrupted by Gianna, who snaps a picture of Marcus and has his face on the front page of the newspaper. Marcus takes it upon himself to solve the mystery of the psychic's murder along with Gianna, but that puts both of them in danger. The investigation leads to a number of revelations. For many, Deep Red stands as not only one of Argento's best films, but one of the best giallo films ever made. If you want a detailed look at this unique Italian subgenre, go ahead and check out episode 49 of this podcast. Deep Red is my personal favorite of his and one of my all-time favorite movies. It has Argento at his peak, two charming leads, a great camera eye, intriguing plot, a fantastic score by Goblin, and some great kills. Despite only taking a break from Giallo for three years between Four Flies on Grey Velvet and Deep Red, it was as if he was gone from the genre for a decade. Filmmakers and franchises should take note. Take a break and allow for people to miss the franchises. Look at Force Awakens. How long had it been between Revenge of the Sith and Force Awakens? The movie made over $2 billion. Aside from how people feel about the film now, people were starved for a new Star Wars movie, and it worked. Deep Red was the same. Argento waited three years to make Deep Red, allowing him to be inspired and creative, and not just make another whodunit, but a film that raised the standards of the giallo genre. The movie was a financial hit, making almost 4 billion lira at the Italian box office, which is roughly $2.5 in American dollars at the time. The music score album by Goblin charted for a year. Speaking of Goblin, they were brought in after Argento was unhappy with the music score by composer Giorgio Gastini. I covered Goblin in episode 9, and to make a long story short, and covering one account of the proceedings, Daria Nicolotti, Argento's partner, saw Cherry 5 perform in concert, and went back to Argento to tell him that he should bring them in to compose the music for Deep Red. Cherry 5 was hired and changed their name to Goblin to fit in better with the horror environment. And drummer Walter Martino was replaced with Agostino Marangolo. I love the music of this film. They aren't full prog rock like they would be for Suspiria, you know, compared to Yes, Genesis, or ELP. At this time, they use a lot of jazz fusion, uh, probably closer to Return to Forever, King Crimson, Weather Report. Death Dies Part 2, the theme for the murders, stands out as a favorite of mine.
then there's Deep Shadows, Mad Puppet, and Gianna also stand out from the album. The main theme has drawn comparisons to Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. John Carpenter said he was inspired by Deep Red for his score for Halloween. Argento co-wrote the script with Bernardino Zamponi. Zamponi was noted for his work with famed Italian director Federico Fellini. Zapponi was instrumental in making the kills as relatable to the audience as possible. People won't react to a gunshot like they would to boiling hot water or hitting the jagged end of a table. The bathtub kill was a specific homage to Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. The main weakness of the script can be traced to two elements, a small cast and a lot of coincidences. There are only about three characters you can suspect are the killer, and the film quickly eliminates one of those suspects, leaving you with two. Early on, one can quickly deduce who is the killer. And the film offers a lot of peculiarities with how the killer is able to anticipate Marcus's actions and knows where he's going to be before he does. That sense of omnipotence is aided by the cinematography of Luigi Covellaire. There are shots that heavily imply Marcus is being watched. His first-person perspective during the kills gives the murderer a slick quality, a sense that they are in control of the moment. Good stuff. Cuvelier also worked with Lucio Fulci for his iconic giallo, Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Another crew member Deep Red shares with Lizard in a Woman's Skin would be effects master Carlo Rambaldi. Rambaldi helped with the gore and the iconic puppet that would later influence Billy for the Saw movies. The kills in this movie are fantastic. The hot water, the sight of a man's teeth being bashed into a fireplace. The last two are simply amazing. You get a head crushed by a car and the elevator. That's all I'm going to say for those who haven't seen this film yet. Just the elevator. David Hemmings and Daria Nicolotti have an instant screwball chemistry that recalls the likes of Hepburn and Tracy. They antagonize each other, but there is a true sense of concern for each other. A palpable attraction. Hemmings was an icon of late 60s, early 70s cinema, thanks to Blow Up, The Long Day's Dying, Barbarella, and The Heroin Busters. He enjoyed a late career renaissance with films like Gladiator, Spy Game, Mean Machine, Gangs of New York, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Dario Nicolodi was not just Argento's partner, but was also a regular for his films and a supporter of her daughter, Asia Argento, even appearing in Asia's film, Scarlet Diva. You'll see her in Inferno, Tenebre, Phenomena, and Mother of Tears. She was also in Shock, the final film for Mario Bava. Macha Merli, Gabriela Villa, and Carla Calamai round out the supporting cast. Deep Red is one of those must-see titles for film buffs and horror buffs. It has everything working for it on every level. It's one of the best, made by one of the best at the height of their powers. I can't recommend this film enough. Roses are red, violets are blue, You can hide 
Suspiria opens with Susie, an American student, arriving in Germany on an eerie stormy night. She plans to attend the prestigious Tens Dance Academy. When Susie approaches the school, another student runs past her. Susie is refused admittance until the next morning, giving her no choice but to stay in town. The student makes her way to her friend's house in a state of panic. She is afraid of something at the dance school. Later that night, she is brutally murdered along with her friend. The next morning, Susie returns to the school and is greeted by Miss Tanner, the head instructor, and Madame Blanc, the deputy headmistress. She is also introduced to her classmates. Things quickly take a turn for the weird. Maggots fall from the ceiling, the pianist is killed by his own dog, and Susie is overcome with fatigue and weakness. Soon, Susie and her fellow dancer, Sarah, suspect that there is something going on. After Sarah disappears, Susie confides in Frank, a friend of Sarah's. Frank tells her the school is connected to a Greek emigre, Helena Marcos, a woman believed to be a witch, and the school is rumored to be a coven of her devotees. Suspiria is the film by Argento that many consider to be his finest effort, surpassing that of Deep Red. Suspiria was a visual evolution over Deep Red and allowed for Argento to indulge in his filmmaking vices. The lighting, cinematography, the music by Goblin, a solid cast of international talent, and the story rooted in reality all contribute to a wonderful dreamy horror. Suspiria was the first in a trilogy akin to the Animals trilogy. Suspiria was followed by Inferno in 1980, then by Mother of Tears in 2007. I can't speak for Inferno, but Mother of Tears was a weak, late career offering by Argento that only highlights how far Argento fell as a creative. Bad acting, underwhelming effects, and a subpar plot made for an immensely disappointing movie. The rich lighting and the use of Technicolor by cinema photographer Luciano Tavoli under the direction of Argento, was due to being inspired by Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The look of the Technicolor made the shots turn out like cut-out cartoons. Some of the shots are simply beautiful. When the girls are sleeping in one of the dance studios, red lights, curtains, and shadows fill the environment with mystery. The sequence in the plaza at night illustrates a sense of isolation. Daria Nicolodi was an instrumental part of the story development of Suspiria. Argento's intrigue with the occult paired with Nicolodi's love of fairy tales laid the groundwork. Nicolodi also implemented the account of her grandmother, who attended a piano school that was a haven for black magic practitioners. The work by Goblin for Suspiria works as a film score just as much as a progressive rock album. Tracks bleed into one another. Uh, The pairing of Black Forest with Blind Concert matches similar song pairings heard on albums like The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or Fragile, which may be one of the scariest pieces of music ever composed.
The use of the bazooki by guitarist Massimo Morante connects with the Greek origins of Marcos the Witch. The casting of the film shows Argento's awareness of the importance of a film's commercial value when selling to international markets. There's a mix of American, German, Spanish, Italian, and Canadian acting talent. Jessica Harper plays the lead role of Susie. Harper really sells the fear and uncertainty of her surroundings. Before Suspiria, she was in the cult classic Phantom of the Paradise. She would make frequent TV appearances and a few in film. She would also appear in the 2018 remake of Suspiria from Amazon Studios. Rounding out the secondary cast is Stefania Cassini, Udo Kier, and Joan Bennett. Suspiria remains, for many, their favorite Argento film. While I stand with Deep Red, I will admit that there is a power to Suspiria, a mesmerizing quality that you can't look away from. It pulls you in. Peter Neal is an American horror author who is enjoying much success from high sales in Europe. Along with his agent Bulmer and assistant Anne, he is promoting his next novel in Italy. While in town, people are being brutally murdered that have any vague connection with Neal. The murderer sends a letter to Neal, telling him his works are inspiring them to kill. This brings in Detective Giramani to take charge of the investigation. Neil himself begins to take an active role in investigating suspects himself with the help of another assistant, Gianni. Very quickly after, revelations come to light and things are not as they have appeared to be. Tenebre marks a period in the career of Dario Argento where he focused more on visuals and horrors, more so than a comprehensible plot, a period that was started with Suspiria. After Tenebre, Argento would continue this trend with Phenomena and Opera. This was the case for his contemporary, Lucio Fulci, who was directing classics like City of the Living Dead and The Beyond around this time. Compared to Argento's previous Giallo films, like Burr with Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tales, and Deep Red, Tenebre is much more gory. For those seeking that, then this film more than satisfies. This film borderlines on taking the kills to American slasher caliber, arguably surpassing the gruesome deaths of Friday the 13th or even Mario Baba's Bay of Blood. Still, the intriguing mystery, the plot twist in the third act, and the clever ending will keep viewers captivated. 
Luciano Tavoli returns as the cinematographer. He has shots in this film that would be replicated by other directors. There's the wonderful crane shot that would be utilized for Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. Then you have the amazing reveal at the end that would be used by Robert Zemeckis for Raising Cain. Outside of Argento, Tavoli would also work on Single White Female for Barbette Schroeder and Titus for Julie Taymor. The electronic music score works despite it not being Goblin in full force. Argento was able to reunite Claudio Simonetti for keyboards, Fabio Pignatelli for bass, and Massimo Marante for guitar. All percussion and drumming was provided by a drum machine instead of bringing in Agostino Marangolo. The odd mix of disco four-on-the-floor drumming with pipe organ, Bach-inspired chords, works wonders for the film, emphasizing the mix of traditional horror with contemporary horror. Anthony Franciosa takes on the lead role of Peter Neal, the writer at the center of this mystery. He sells the character as easygoing early on before the horror starts. Franciosa was no stranger to exploitation, appearing in Across 110th Street and Death Wish 2. In supporting roles, you have the late great John Saxon, Giuliano Gemma, and the lovely Daria Nicolotti. Tenebre packs a horror punch, standing out among the slasher film crop of the early 1980s. The gore is used to maximum effect, the music by three-fourths of Goblin is a treat to the ears, the camera work alone is worth viewing the movie. Compared to Argento's recent films, uh, this is a classic of his mid-career catalog. a prostitute leaves her client in disgust. Although we never know what bizarre fetish was too much for her. She bumps into a drawer, revealing a disturbing arsenal of knives. She makes it to a train, but finds she accidentally took a folder that contains information from past killings. The killer catches up to her and brutally murders her. Retired Detective Moretti is brought in on an unofficial basis to help with the investigation, 17 years earlier, he was trying to solve the crimes of the dwarf killer. Suddenly, the murders stopped. Now, it appears the killings have continued with someone copycatting the M.O. of the dwarf killer. Joining him is Giacomo, whose mother was killed in the previous spree. At the scenes of the crime, a paper cutout of an animal is found. Turns out the murders are linked to a poem, each line referencing an animal and a method of murder against the animal. The murder victims are killed in the same manner as the animal in the poem. Released in 2001, Sleepless, a.k.a. Non Ho Sono, was considered a return to form for Argento. This was five years after his last giallo effort, the Stendhal Syndrome. 
So there was a stretch of time where Argento took a break from the genre again, not unlike the stretch between Four Flies on Grey Velvet and Deep Red. Similar to Deep Red, Sleepless relies on a lot of coincidences and a small cast to narrow down the suspect. And the reveal of the killer comes off as a head-scratcher because the film leaves out some important information uh, until the very end. Without those details coming to light, there is some confusion on how it connects to the killer. Then we find out there wasn't just one killer. That's not to say there aren't some great moments that recall the peak of past Argento. There is a panning shot of a murder of a ballerina. We only see from the knee down of the people in the scene. It's simple, yet it plays into the cinematography of Deep Red and Tenebre. Sleepless also marked the reunion of the classical lineup of Goblin. Simonetti, Pignatelli, Morante, and Marangolo. This is the lineup that gave us Deep Red, Suspiria, and Dawn of the Dead. Genesis had their best with Gabriel, Collins, Rutherford, Hackett, and Banks. Yes had Anderson, Squire, Howe, Bruford, and Wakeman. A peak lineup, but unfortunately not during their peak period. It was 1978's Little Illy uh, when the, this particular lineup of the band performed together, and Simonetti hated the experience. He compared it to high school teenagers fighting, and he swore he would never put himself through such again. Among the cast, the only one who stands out is Max von Sydow as Moretti. He's an icon, going all the way back to 1957 with the Seventh Seal. Uh, then you have Virgin Spring, which would inspire Wes Craven's Last House on the left. He played Jesus Christ in The Greatest Story Ever Told. And then there's The Exorcist, Flash Gordon, Conan the Barbarian, Dune. He was more than just Disney, Star Wars, and Game of Thrones. Sleepless would be gold on paper. You have Argento returning to the genre he helped popularize. Goblin is back with their best lineup, but the film falls short in offering a comprehensible plot or a solution that makes sense with regard to what the audience is informed of. Sleepless is a reminder of how far Argento has fallen as a creative, and it's all the more painful watching the film after this realization. And that wraps up this look at Dario Argento. Next, we have a special Halloween edition of The Three Tenors. In this segment, John and I discuss uh, both the list of Rob Hill and our lists for slasher films. Enjoy. Kenzie Lambert here uh, from Making the Movies, uh, here with another episode of Three Tenors, with always uh, the second tenor, John Cleveland. Hi, everybody. And uh, today we uh, have a, a fun Halloween topic, uh, since we are, uh, it's it's the season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nothing quite says Halloween like slasher movies. Oh, the best. Mm-hmm. 
And so here uh, for this countdown, we're going to do our top 10 slasher films. Uh, to just give us a little bit of a preamble, uh, we'll go ahead and look at uh, Mr. Hill's introduction for the slasher genre. What exactly is a slasher movie? Generally speaking, it must feature a psychopath who systematically kills a sequence of victims in particularly gruesome fashion. They are almost always American movies, and the killer will generally be a masked male who uses some sort of bladed weapon, usually on promiscuous teenagers. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good breakdown of the genre. Yeah, particularly the the late seventies through the eighties. But you also right. you brought up a few before we started recording that were sort of proto slashers. Yeah, just because like in my research, I mean, I knew about some beforehand, but I definitely had to go out and you know, this is a learning experience for everybody. And I definitely discovered some way older slashes. Like, I had in mind, you know, like, the the, the classic callbacks, like, uh, Texas Chainsaw, even going back to like, Psycho and Peeping mm -hmm. Tom is, like, the oldest slasher, the original yep. ones. And I ended up finding out that there are way older films that can lay claim to the first slasher. There's uh, The Lodger from 1944, about a crazed medical, um, I guess, a doctor who is obsessed with quote-unquote actresses, which is really just code for hookers at the time. He couldn't say that because it's 1944. <laughs> and acting did have kind of a nefarious reputation yes. at that time, so... Yeah, the coral at the time, at least, the correlation was a valid one. Mm -hmm. um, and that's got some uh, some definitely, like, proto-ideas of what Slashers is. And that was Hitchcock, too. Yeah. Early oh, Hitchcock. Yeah. Early Hitchcock. He's, he's uh, wielding a knife. He uh, butchers uh, knives specifically. There's scenes of, like, the dead eyes... Twisted Family Histories, and of course, one of the classic, iconic elements of a slasher film, the point of view shots, from the killer's point of view. So, like, that's all classic slasher, and again, Hitchcock, mm -hmm. so early. And then the other one, even earlier, this is the oldest thing I could see that in any way could lay claim to being the first one, is Leopard, uh, The Leopard Man from 1943, about a nightclub owner who has a pet leopard to like draw in the crowd, it gets loose and people start turning up dead with slash wounds, but they don't really appear to be leopard slash wounds. It's like somebody's using the leopard's escape as a way to kill off people. And that one can lay claim to, I don't know if it's true, but from what I've read it is, the first instance of, you know, girls out in the dark, she, she's running, she's scared, we don't know what's chasing her. And then she's pounding on a door, and somebody goes to open the door, and right before the person gets to the door, blood comes under the door. And that's also a classic mm -hmm. slasher move. And so, yeah, I'm surprised the Hayes office let that one slip by. I'm positive it didn't. Because <laughs> that's one of the things, like, when we watch a film now, we maybe don't even realize that this is probably a re-edit from its original mm -hmm. release. So, And that one, uh, Jacques Tournaire, who was a big yep. horror, horror director. Also a big fan of Cats. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and uh, take a little walk through uh, Mr. Hill's list, starting at number 10, When a Stranger Calls. Classic. Oh, yeah, Classic. and that's that's the one that really perpetuated the calls that are coming from inside the house yes. trope. That, it's, it saddens me, because I definitely have one on my list uh, that has that element to it, that it's so overused now, but for us, mm -hmm. like back in the day at least, it was that was awesome. That was yeah. such a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, number nine. Oh, a very underrated one. The Burning from 1981. Oh, oh. The Burning is the best lesser-known slasher of the mm -hmm. 80s, in my opinion. And this is the one that Tommy, uh, Tom Savini said yes to instead of Friday the 13th Part 2. Yes, which changed history, someone could argue. But yeah, yeah no. 
yeah, no. Burning gets not nearly uh, enough credit for how awesome it is. Uh, and just for that raft scene. Oh, yeah, uh, that's the scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number eight. Okay, this is one I actually haven't seen. Tourist Trap. <laughs> All right, so I have seen it. We watched it on a bad movie night. Um, spoiler alert. It is weird because it seems to want to be two completely different movies, and they didn't know which way to go. Because the whole premise is that it's tourists, they end up pulling off on the side of the road, you know, an unused part of the highway because the highway moved, mm -hmm. that old chestnut. Yeah. And a guy has an old, like, oh, it's a, it was a little tourist trap, like, side attraction with, like, dolls and, and mannequins and stuff. And then, well, it might be, it might be that he's insane and killing people off because his wife died and he's really, he's having, you know, business slumped and he doesn't know what to do. Or it might be that the place is haunted and you're never really told which one is the right answer. <laughs> you know, sometimes that can work. It, it may or may not in Tourist Trap. That's, a, that's an arguable point. Um, again, we watched it on a bad movie night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number seven, The Prowler. Uh, this is uh, Joseph Zito, who would later go on to do Friday the 13th Part 4. So, yeah. yep. Also another Tom Savini classic. He yep. actually claims, I think, if I'm correct... He claims that this movie has his best work in it. Ah, I believe it. I believe it. I've seen some of the shots from it, and you got that distinct look with the World War II attire, which yeah. is oh, a yeah. nice the, touch. The World War II vet, yeah. yeah. Uh, number six. Okay, here's another gem. Sleepaway Camp. Classic. It almost made it on my list. Yeah. If you, like, a good film made so much better of a film by its ending. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't know its ending... You don't know Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, and it's also got a bunch of nice little homages to other horror movies as well. So okay. it's, it's a love letter to the slasher genre. Yeah. Uh, okay, oh, number five, My Bloody Valentine. Classic. Yep. Classic, another lesser, I would say a lesser known. It's, I put My Bloody Valentine as B tier, mm -hmm. a slasher, because not as many people know about it. But if you know about slashers, you know about My Bloody Valentine. Oh, yeah, they get the, the pickaxe, you mm -hmm. got the, the, the gas mask and minor attire. Yep. All right, number four, um, Friday the 13th, the original. Of course. This has to be on all of our lists. It's on, I don't see how it's possible it isn't. Uh, for, uh, for me personally, though, this is, if you try to, I know this is the biggest mistake I can do with the slasher movie, but if I try to put logic to this movie, it doesn't work. Correct, <laughs> but that's not the point. It's the twist. That the we, twist that was, it's it does one of the biggest violations of a murder mystery is that you can't introduce yes. a new character in the last 15 minutes, and this movie totally does that. Oh yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> it breaks a lot of rules, but sometimes you gotta, hey, you don't make omelets, you, you don't break <laughs> eggs. Uh, okay, number three, here we go. Black Christmas, 1974. My favorite holiday, well, my favorite horror Christmas movie, mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a huge genre, and every single year I watch that movie on Christmas, it gets better. Mm -hmm. There are so many layers to that film that you don't see the first time you watch it or you just pass them by. And just on great. a technical level, too, just some of the shots oh, in that God. movie, like the uh, like looking through the little crack in the doorway at his eye. I love it. Good stuff. So many solid deaths, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just some of the people that were in that movie. You've got Margaret Kidder, you've got... Um, this is back when Margaret Kidder was, was a thing. Olivia Hussey, and yeah. you got the... Uh, What's uh, Andrea Martin from SCTV of all? Of all yeah. Things, yeah. <laughs> all right, number two, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, there's nothing you can say about this film that hasn't been nah. said about that. Classic, awesome. Again, 
I would be incredibly surprised if it's not on both of our lists as well. Vintage, arguably one of the best 80s horror movies. Uh, early 70s. Early 70s, early sorry. 70s. Yeah, I was like, wait a second, no, it's older than that. My apologies. That's it. But, like, it is so good, it gets better. Like, I own it on three different, mm -hmm. like, DVD sets. Like, like or uh, the boxes, like, like Blu-ray and Steelbook and stuff like that. It is so good, so rewatchable, awesome. And just, it is hysterical, but in, like, the darkest way possible, just with the, yeah. the dinner sequence. Oh, yeah, I've, I, <laughs> I have a friend who considers it a dark comedy, and I have to submit, it's difficult trying to come up with reasons that it isn't. It's just, like, out of nowhere you get that line, Look what your brother did to the door! <laughs> uh, and, of course, number one, Halloween. Yeah, because, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all the other times, like, a lot of slashers don't have the best pedigree when it comes to their writing or their directing or their acting. Halloween has amazing all of them. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of it is John Carpenter. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis puts it in a good yeah, performance, yep. let's, not be, let's not be clear. But, like, it's got everything a slasher needs to have. It's amazing. It's atmospheric. Another one that, like, I can watch that today and be like, if this was in theaters today, it just came out, I'd watch and be like, yeah, that's still a good movie. Mm -hmm. Like, it, do, it it hasn't aged itself. There are, yes, there, because it's a, such a great and a well-known film, there are those moments, people have rewatched it to the point where they've gone, wait, how does, how does he know how to drive a car? <laughs> I'm like, if that's your only thing you can try mm -hmm. to have a problem with, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Such a good one. Uh, and yeah, you got uh, Nick Castle as the shape who just does a great yep. job of doing very little. Hey, and that's only recently come out that it was confirmed to be him. Like, yeah. I remember it being a big deal. Like, no one knows who played him because this actor did sometimes, this actor did another. He was never on set without a mask on, so no one knew. So it was this big thing about, like, no one was certain exactly who played him, and then... I don't know. We're like, no, it's it's Nick Castle. Obviously, here's here's set footage of him doing yep. it. Why not? So, oh, yeah. Castle himself is going to have a pretty awesome career. Oh so. yeah, oh yeah, one hundred percent. So, all right, uh, that is uh, Rob Hill's list for the top ten slasher films. John, let's go ahead and check out your list. Okay, okay. Well, uh, let's see here. Couple honorable mentions before we uh, we start. Um, I want to call out Final Girl, the Final Girl from two thousand sixteen. Definitely the newest thing on my list, but, um, spoiler alert, it's not a great couple of years for slashers all in all, yeah. but it's a fun homage to the genre, it plays a lot of fun with it, uh, they get teleported into a movie that's a slasher movie, so they know all the tropes, <laughs> but the killer is that indestructible thing where, like, it doesn't matter what you do to him, he's coming back, so mm -hmm. it's great. Um, if you haven't seen it, well worth watching, especially if you're a fan of the slasher genre. Um, I know we called out The Burning and uh, My Bloody Valentine. Uh, I want to also call out Alice, Sweet Alice. Mm -hmm. It's another one of those classic ones that doesn't get enough love, in my opinion. So, all right, number 10. Right. I, won't, I won't bog us down with too many, because I could just sit here and name slashes all night. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Um, and I feel like your list is going to be most uh, most of the one. We're going to talk about a lot of the same movies, Yeah. So. All right, number 10. And it's surprising, I guess, that it didn't come out of his list, but I guess I can see it. It's got a special place in my heart. Child's Play. Oh, Chucky yeah. is one of the iconic uh, slasher villains because when you think about it, it's so absurd. Oh, yeah. He's a doll. He's yep. three feet tall, two feet tall probably. 
So like, how does this work? But it works. It's just Brad Dorff's voice. Brad Dorf, uh, yeah, it's yeah. just uh, the first one too is is genuinely creepy. Like other one, obviously the the series got as you'll see mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of these, the series tends to get a little comedic. In that one, nobody gets more comedic than well, I guess Leprechaun gets more comedic, but yeah, yeah. nobody really comedic or absurd. The, you know, that's yeah. that's fair. I think, well, in all fairness, I'm pretty sure Child's Play gets absurd as yeah. well. But uh, no, Child's Play from 1988, solid, solid slasher. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, very good. All right, number nine because it has to be on my list. I was gonna put it at number ten just to get it over with, but I do feel it's a better film. It deserves not to be number ten. Psycho from okay. 1960. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It sets up a lot of the genre tropes that, you know, other films have used since then. Mommy issues, mm-hmm. isolated location, although it's not the first one to do that. It just, it's it's such a good film, regardless of it's slasher or not. And talk about some taboo material for its time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that I mean, the, the whole concept that, like... The shower sequence would, was causing people to have hysteria. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy. Now it's so tame, all in all. Actually, uh, just a quick shout yeah. out. There's a YouTube channel called um, uh, Movies Explained For, mm-hmm. and uh, there's one for Psycho called Psycho Explained for Millennials. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's such a cool idea. I love that. We'll have to check that out. Thank you for that. All right, number eight. And again, this is just, it had to be on my list somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not that big of a fan of it. I think it's way overblown, and I do not like any of its sequels. But it's important to the genre, and it was pretty good. 1996's Scream. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Com- it's the com- it's if you're gonna say there's a movie that comments on the genre, it is the movie that comments on the genre by Wes Craven, yep. a man who was, you know, made instrumental. Famous by the genre. Yeah, instrumental <laughs> in the genre. So. It's great. I do think it's overblown, not nearly as good as people think it is. It's got a lot of problems that they keep trying to patch. and It's like software. Yeah. Oh, we came up with a bug. Well, or came up with an issue. Let's patch it. Let's patch it. Let's patch it. And they keep doing it. There's st- there's going to be a new screen coming out of the, in a year. Yeah, it, so. it got too big too soon also. Yeah. Um, I also, I personally don't like that now every horror movie after it has to be a social commentary on the, the yeah. genre it's talking about. Yeah. So... But at the same time, it was like one of the first uh, to ever do that concept, and boy, is it great! Mm-hmm. It's a solid film, and I'm not gonna lie, I did not see the ending coming. Like, no. it, it's it's just a solid film. Um, for anyone who does like that, though, I'm also giving a little shout out to if you haven't seen it, watch Behind the Mask: The Rise of uh, Leslie Vernon. Vernon, yeah, yep. I actually think that's a better film than Scream, and a better let's talk about the genre than let's literally just talk about the genre. Mm-hmm. It's more subversive than that. From 2006, but also... And it has a real sincerity to it, which yeah. I can say Scream really, Scream really, really doesn't. No, but Scream also is deeply in the 90s. Like, I, I it's yeah. a product of its time. And how many movie posters ripped off the Scream movie poster? Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> so, all right. Number seven. As mentioned by uh, Mr. Hill, Black Christmas from 1974. Yep. It gets better every time I watch it. The best horror Christmas movie, which is weirdly a subgenre. And it's just, we already talked about it, so I'm not going to go on, but just great film. And we like to kind of make the joke that it's uh, in the same universe as Nightmare on Elm Street because of yes, the late John, John Saxon. Saxon. Yes. <laughs> uh, bless his heart. Rest in peace. Um, 19, uh, number number six, mm-hmm. 1974's The Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. Massacre. 
from the opening uh, text scroll dialogue. John LaRoquette. Which, John LaRoquette. Yeah. Out of nowhere, just because he just so happened to be friends uh, with uh, Toby Hooper. So, so awesome. To the final scene, arguably one of the best final scenes of all of mm-hmm. horror, horror films, in my opinion. Just solid, solid film. The only reason it's not lower on the list, because I'm a huge fan of Leatherface, is I do think it, it does lean towards maybe not dark comedy, but sometimes a little like, okay, I believe that there's this, I believe there's that, but then it goes a little, it steps its toe over the line in absurdity a little mm-hmm. too often for me to be higher on the list, but it's still an amazing film. Again, I own multiple copies of it. Um, its sequels go absurd and weird real quick. I actually really <laughs> like the 2003 remake. I know I get a lot of crap from my horror buddies for that. <laughs> Because it's like, oh, you can't remake a... Vin-. I'm like, I'm sorry, I think the remake was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's better than the original, I just, I like it. So, great, great, great film, um, and a great slasher. Mm-hmm. All right, top five, The Heavy Here Rates. we go. Candyman, from 1992. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, it's... I remember sitting down when I first wanted to watch it and being like, okay, I don't know if this is going to work, because I hadn't heard anything really mm-hmm. about it at the time, because it definitely, I feel like, slipped under the radar. I rented it at a Blockbuster one night kind of thing. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to really work. I don't really, I don't, I come from a rural area. I don't know what it's like to be in, like, a major city with projects and stuff, mm-hmm. so I don't know if I'm going to get what they're going to talk about. Didn't even matter. Not a thing. Ignore the, A masterfully directed film. I, I mean, I can say a lot about the acting. I can say the special effects, which are next level. Mm-hmm. Covering yourself in that many bees is just yes. absurd. But when it comes down, there are few films I can name in the horror genre with better atmosphere that is slowly built up over time mm-hmm. than Candyman. Yeah, and Tony's hat helps too. Oh, no, absolutely. Gift to mankind, that man. <laughs> All right. Number four. And this is at the point where I think everyone can tell me what my top four are. I'm just going to tell you what order they're in yeah. at this point. All right, number four, A Nightmare on Elm Street. All right. Because yeah. obviously it's on the list. Mm-hmm. It's not an... I, I, again, I, I don't understand how it cannot be on someone's list. Arguably, though you would have a hard time convincing me not so, the best slasher villain of all time mm-hmm. yeah. in Freddy. At least the funnest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great. It was still scary at that time. I mean, Dream Warrior is a better film, in my opinion, um, which is the third in the in the in the line. Uh, 1987's Dream Warrior, yeah. but for genre-defying slashers, I, I got to say it's the first one. It oh, introduced yeah. the concept. It's still very scary. Freddy wasn't Freddy wasn't the hero of the movie yet. And in Dream Warrior, like they do a lot to they give the kids dream powers to try mm-hmm. to make them a viable and you know opposition I was gonna say a viable antagonist to his protagonist mm-hmm. because by that time we want him to win yeah so but this is a great great film number three Friday the 13th part one mm-hmm. again the twist ending you're right it's not really like you can't just introduce a kid but if she had a scene in the first like, I think it would be, it would shut a lot of the critics up for that if she had just been in one of the first scenes when they were at the camp and, like, she's just at... Or she's oh, in the diner at the beginning. If she's at the diner at the beginning yeah. or she's, 
like it, in one of the early scenes, like mm -hmm. she's at the camp dropping foods off, says hi to him, and then leaves. Yeah, I think it would just immediately have told. Like I wouldn't hear the guff of like you can't do that, and I'm like, you can't. But it was still kind of done well. Now, of course, you I've heard your your thing about it. You're right. There's no way she's the killer. Mm -hmm. There are several points where you see like a man's hand do it, yep. or like she throws a fully grown man through a window, and she's clearly not going to do that. Or she teleports. Or she teleports. <laughs> but at the exact same time, like. It's just done so well that I don't even care. Right. Um, not my favorite of the, uh, the series, though. My favorite still Part 7, The New Blood, because... It's it, Carrie versus Jason. It's Carrie versus Jason. <laughs> He's got a real threat. And on top of all of that, it's, you know, it looks the best. We see what Jason looks like without his mask. Mm -hmm. Um, he's the most beat up of any of the Jasons, I think. Yeah, Terry Kaiser. Yeah. No, Seven is, um, uh... Who's the iconic? I can't think of his name right yeah, now. Yeah, from uh, Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, Terry Kaiser. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Yep. I was referring to the actor playing Jason. Oh, I'm oh sorry. Uh, Kane Hodder. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, actually, that was Kane Hodder's first time. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, yeah. and that's the other thing. It's Kane Hodder's the first time he plays. He brings so much mm -hmm. uh, personality to the character. It's just great. All right. But that's it. So yeah. my third thing was definitely Friday the 13th Part 1. All right. Number two, and this is, to some, this is controversial. Because some people's rules of what a slasher is, is it has to be a human. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, that is not one of the rules I prescribe to, or it's one of the rules, because sometimes, like I said, you gotta break some eggs. Yep. It's the rule that gets bent or broken with this one. Alien. It's just a slasher in space. Yeah. It's so good. Like, it's, it's the best film, in my opinion, on my list. Like, not slasher included, just the best film. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's just if you put a slasher in face. If he wasn't an alien and he was a crazed man with a knife. Or it could have been like a, another one face. of the, the working Joes that go insane. Yeah, if you had just never had the alien appear and it's just a, one of the crew members had just been going insane and blaming it on aliens, it would, nobody would have an argument. Mm -hmm. Just because it's a xenomorph doesn't change anything. They're slowly picked off in an isolated area. Like, it's, it has a lot of the tropes of the slasher. Now, with that said, it doesn't adhere to the, all the tropes because it doesn't need to. You know, they're not promiscuous teens. It's nothing like that. But, like, it's a slasher in space. Mm -hmm. So, and again, just so, so good. Such yeah. an amazing movie. And number one, which I feel like if you really know anything about slashers, you know what my number one is because I haven't said it yet. It's Halloween. Yeah. It's yeah. the greatest slasher film ever made. It's everything, it has, I don't want to say the tropes, but that's the best way you can really describe it. It has all the tropes of the series, it innovates, it's atmospheric, it's well acted, it's well directed. There's nothing wrong with the film. Even if you want to nitpick of not knowing how Michael Myers could have possibly learned how to drive, if that's your problem. Or he survives getting shot six times. Or he survives somehow getting shot six times. But that's the end. That's, yeah. it, the, for, I'm not talking about the sequel. <laughs> I'm just talking about the first one. He's a. It also introduces that concept of that he's an unkillable machine. Mm -hmm. He's more than human. He is just a human. He's just that. Obviously, the sequels try to answer that question. But like, he's so monstrously insane. He is a, you know, ascended past being a human. He is now a monster. Yeah. So. So good. Such an amazing movie. It's and just John Carpenter doing everything. Oh, yeah. 
From the soundtrack to the setting, it's all John Carpenter. And could you imagine if we had either Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee instead of uh, Donald Pleasance? I mean, I wouldn't argue with it. I'm not saying it would be bad, but it'd be it'd be weird almost. Yeah. I, I think they could have both done it, don't get me wrong, because the all three of those men are great actors, but Pleasance just is so iconic yeah. in the role. And actually, uh, Christopher Lee did actually go on record regretting not taking the role, so yeah. that, that says a lot. Yes. All right, uh, for my top ten list, uh, we're we're gonna be all over the world on this one here. <laughs> so uh, number ten, it's uh, the Spanish entry. Uh, you don't need to go to Texas to have a chainsaw massacre. It's pieces. Yeah, I almost put pieces on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, the uh, Bud Spencer esque Paul L. Smith as the red herring the whole time. So. Uh, yes, yes, the uh, gardener. <laughs> That has a chainsaw and it, it appears to attack a man with it. <laughs> oh, but he isn't actually. No. And just uh, it, if you're a fan like us of MST3K, you're going to recognize a lot of the faces in this movie because it's oh yeah, the, the people. It's pot people. It's the, yes, yeah. like almost the entire cast. <laughs> but nonetheless, just the it does what the slasher should do. Great body count. The easiest jigsaw puzzle in history. <laughs> All right, number nine. Uh, this one is uh, one of the infamous gritty ones uh, from 1980, w Maniac, directed by William Lustig. I knew when, when we sat down to write these lists, I knew Maniac was going to be on your list. Yep. <laughs> you got Tom Savini doing what he does yep. best, getting his own head blown off. Yes, in one of the best head explosions <laughs> in cinema history. Yep. And uh, the, the lead actor, too, uh, Joe Spinelli, yep. really underrated. Oh, heavily, heavily underrated. He's... I feel his career is getting uh, retrospective mm -hmm. now more. I mean, after a couple other films he's done, but I mean, yeah, Rocky, The Godfather. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't really. really no, he's he's, he's like a, the guy that's in the background. Yeah, he's so. a, he's he's a speaking extra in those films. But yeah, no, he's. Uh, I mean, he's in Nighthawks too. You want to bring mm -hmm. that up? Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he had a small part in the Forbidden Zones. So yes, yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, he uh, Maniac is a is a is a great film. I mean, it has a remake, and the yeah. remake's decent. Yeah, too. Elijah Wood, uh, and it's all a, a POV remake too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, number eight, because of course they had to be on here. Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Again, it's a movie. It's got so many good elements. It would have been a fine slasher, but I think it would have been forgotten if not for the ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, some people have accused Neil Jordan of ripping it off for the crying game. But. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's not uh, it's not as much of a surprise in the crying game all in all, no. but <laughs> as much spoiler alert of what, if you know what that is, you, you now know how that other yeah. movie ends. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, number seven, another one that had to be on here, Halloween. Of course, yeah, yeah, it has to be on your like. Yeah. You can argue. We can argue if it's you know not number one, number seven, whatever like that. But it has to be on mm -hmm. your list. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number six, another one, Black Christmas, which yep. is just it's become one of my Christmas traditions is yep. to watch it. The weird correlation that those movies had to a lot of people uh, don't realize that that's why Halloween's called Halloween. It was supposed to. Carpenter was inspired by Black Christmas. And we're like, oh, I'll make a horror horror movie for Halloween, and then the next year I'll just make a new one. Halloween 2, mm -hmm. and it'll be about a different thing. It'll be yeah. like a yearly anthology. Yeah, it's like uh, what they tried to do with Season of the Witch. Yeah. yeah, and that was the thing. It was like, well, after Halloween was so big, the studio demanded Halloween 2 was made with 
Michael Myers again, so he make against his better judgment, he makes it. Mm-hmm. So he's like, okay, well, I'm gonna we'll go back to what I wanted to do, which is three is gonna be Season of the Witch because it's a completely different movie. Yep. Oh wait, everyone hates this. Mm-hmm. Only now is the movie getting like okay, it's yeah, actually not that bad. Yeah. It just so we're clear, I'm a fan of it. I think it's way better than people give it credit for. However, it it's got some problems, mm-hmm. but like. It was clear that Michael Myers is what people wanted. Yeah. So, and they kind of the the, the cultism they dabble in that movie kind of uh, rubs off on into the later Halloween movies because yeah. they try to make a, the, the cult of the cult. thorn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's such a oh uh, that movie that series more than any other of the classic like eighty slasher genre series. Yep. That one really got off the rails in my opinion because like. Yes, Leprechaun got weird, but Leprechaun was weird to begin with. It just got really weird. Yeah. Chucky got weird, but Chucky, again, is a doll. He, it's kind of started as weird. Mm-hmm. Halloween got weird and off the rails. Almost like if you were... I, I, using the train analogy, it's almost like it was going in a completely <laughs> different direction. I'm like, remember, Buster Rhymes beat him up. Uh-huh. Ant-Man killed... Michael Myers at yeah. one point. So think about that. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although now you've got uh, Anthony Michael Hall now as uh, the uh, the the uh, Paul Rudd character now in the, yeah. the next Halloween Kills. We'll see how that works yeah. out. I don't have much hope. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, number five. Uh, we're taking a trip to Italy on this one. Uh, Dario Argento's Tenebre. I knew Argento was going to appear on your list somewhere, <laughs> and I was just waiting was which one. Yeah. Uh, Tenebre is a solid oh, choice. Oh, yeah. Uh, and a couple of shots have been ripped off by other movies. Yeah, no, just a few. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, Argento doing what he does best. Beautifully shot. And you've got Goblin in the background, which of course what do. more could you ask for? Of, co- of course you do. <laughs> I think they just follow him around and play yeah. when he do- Oh, is he eating breakfast? Play. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, number four. Wes Craven's new nightmare is on there. Just because for me, not only is it a Nightmare on Elm Street film, but it also has the meta exercise that Scream does as well. So I think you mix them both together and... I think that's a valid thing. I would say that I that's a really good point. I didn't think to, to comment on that, but yeah, I think you, you said it perfectly. It is the point where those two genres meet mm-hmm. and those two films meet and I think it's better than Scream. And also too, you mentioned that, you know, we see Freddy as the hero. This movie addresses that yep. and in a concerning manner where you've got little kids dressing up as uh-huh. this child murderer who's actually a child molester as well. Yeah. So So yeah, no, that's a really good mm-hmm. point. I'm a huge fan. That's my second favorite of the after Dream Warrior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, number three, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because it has to yep. be on your list, yeah. Yeah, and you know, who knew that Ed Gein would be such an influential killer? So, <laughs> cut to Psycho, cut to like 20 <laughs> other movies. Yeah. yeah, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, number two, Friday the 13th, but part two, when Jason, was, for me, was at his scariest. Well, it's the introduction of Jason as a legitimate threat, not just mm-hmm. the tail end of the movie. You know, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. appearance at the end of the first one. Um, I still say if you're going to do, if we're going to talk about Jason, we have to go down later in the line where he really develops who he is, or even mm-hmm. just can go to part three where, yeah. you know, he gets his mask. Or there, what is it, part five where he's, 
he becomes dead. After yeah, part the, five is uh, oh no, part five is uh, the the fake Jason. Oh, uh, number no, six never is mind. Where, yeah, <laughs> number six is where we get zombie Jason. Okay, yeah, number six is because that's the thing about that that whole series is like the first one doesn't have Jason. Mm-hmm. The second one, he's got a sack on his head. The third one, he gets his mask. The fourth one, you could argue, is like him developing like thing, but he's still yeah. alive. The fifth one doesn't have Jason. No. Spoiler alert. <laughs> It is better than the people give it credit for. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to tell you right now, I remember watching that film at the very end. I was an upset young man. <laughs> I was so angry. And then six, yeah, at six he becomes the zombie Jason, the unkillable uh, zombie that mm-hmm. he is, the unkillable killing machine that he is. Yep. So, you know, you could argue that that's the first, yeah. you know. So, yeah, everyone has their favorites, and they're really, almost all of them are valid. Mm-hmm. I really find um, one of my best friends. Uh, his favorite is the newest one, the remake with um, I can't think the guy from uh, Supernatural in it. Yeah, like because mm-hmm. he just likes. Oh, I think it was a really good reway to make it more realistic and stuff. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I, I don't feel that to be true, but I do like it. But mm-hmm. I just okay, that's that's an interesting take. But all right, yeah. And speaking of take, uh, paying homage, the look of Jason in part two is exactly like uh, the town that dreaded sundown, the Phantom yeah. Killer. So yeah, and the town. I mean, like that. That just uh, I feel like the town that dreaded sundown because that almost was, almost was on my like, yeah. honorable mention. Proto slasher, yeah, a proto slasher. But at the same time, like I feel like that look is really just the. Let's be clear. That movie's somewhat commenting on its the quote unquote Southern justice, the KKK, yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's very much. Inspired he is by a Klansman. Yeah, yeah. Alright, number one. For those who know me, this should not be a surprise at all. Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. I already knew it was yep. going to be there. For this whole thing. So you just have top ten slashes. I'm like, you're going to do Bay of Blood. Well, you have to because the, you look at this movie and you look at all the movies that came after it and it's like, yeah, you, you've got to... Next you're going to tell me that people were ripping off direct scenes about people screwing in a bed and getting speared together. Like, yep. like that didn't exactly happen. And there's also the octopus in the face shot that was later used in Sleepaway Camp and also Alien. Yeah. Uh, and you've got the same effects artist as Alien as well. Yes, which is probably a lot more to do with it than it's, it being inspired, but yes. Now, here's a question for you. Do you prefer Bay of Blood or Twitch the Death Nerve title? Uh, I actually like Carnage as the oh, title. Oh, okay. Yep. An, I don't think I've ever heard that. All yep. right. Okay. And, of course, it was actually billed as a sequel to Last House on the Left. <laughs> of course it was. Another <laughs> film that we didn't talk about because it's not really a slasher. No, nah, no. Nah, I don't see it as a slasher film. I just see it as just a grueling like, exploitation. exploitation. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. And it has a little bit of a home invasion element to it as well. Yes, it does. most certainly does. So, but all right, those are our list for our top ten slasher films. Feel free to let us know what yours are in the comments section below because Absolutely. I'm sure your your, your lists are probably going to be completely different from ours. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm guaranteeing we miss some. I I know there's mm-hmm. some we missed. Or I mean, even though like, oh wait, you you think you know Friday the Thirteenth Part Three is the best? What are you talking about? It's, <laughs> it's Part Eight, man. You know. <laughs> Yeah, to each uh, well, as long as it's not Jason takes a boat ride. <laughs> hey, I like that one. It's got a horrible ending, but I like that one. It just gets him out of there for a minute. It was nice change of scenery. Jason needs a vacation too. <laughs> okay, fine. Part nine then. Which one's not? Jason goes to hell. All right. Hey. <laughs>
you're right. That one's pretty weird, and I don't really have anything to say positively about it. It's a cool ending, though. Yeah, yeah. The opposite. It's got a really cool... Okay, I'll say this. Ignoring that it's just a weird movie, because why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. But you gotta admit, when we all saw that ending, when Freddy's glove came yeah. up to the ground and grabbed his face, we all went, Oh my God! Greatest crossover ever. Yeah. Shut up, Marvel. You got nothing on the cinematic universe. <laughs> it took crossover. how long, though, for that movie to come out? Like, what, 12 years almost? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same like this boyhood. That yeah. It's yeah. Two years to make. You could film the longest film ever to, to shoot in the time it took to make the movie. Yeah. yeah. So. All right, so uh, this is uh, Mackenzie Lambert signing off and John Cleveland as well. <laughs> yeah, bye, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Up next is an interview with returning guest Mike Deserto and his filmmaking partner, Russell Maggio. It is the 20th anniversary of their documentary, Chiller, Three Days of Peace, Love, and Gore, filmed all the way back in the distant year of 2000. Mike and Russ interview some of the genre personalities and eccentrics in the New Jersey area. All right. Hey, folks, uh, this is Mackenzie Lambert uh, for Mac and the Movies. Uh, uh, here with a couple of special guests. Uh, one of them, uh, Mike Deserto, who you may remember from our, our episode in May, number 46. Uh, he's the director of Trip to Sane and the host of the podcast, Stoops of Atlantis. Uh, today, we have uh, both Mike and special guest Russell Maggio. Uh, we'll be discussing their documentary, Chiller, Three Days of Love, Peace, and Gore. Uh, I don't know if you would call this a remaster or is this just a, a, a comprehensive edit? Uh, but I'm joined by the filmmakers themselves, uh, Mike Deserto and Russell Maggio. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here again, McKenzie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for my first. Uh, my first time here. It's a. Uh, it's a. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, most of the listeners will remember Mike from the previous episode, but uh, uh, Russell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm primarily a, a computer technologist with uh, a lot of uh, work with the Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, I also do a lot of other projects. Uh, Mike and I have a long history of filmmaking and, and doing a lot of work together. And we did this chiller documentary quite some time ago as a, a fun idea to do something together, as a fun project to see what people do with these things. So it piqued my interest. So we got together and, and did it. Uh, I do other projects as well. I did some a bunch of writing and uh, short stories and that type of thing. And also, we have a podcast that uh, Mike yes, and I right, do. Yes, that's right, Yeah, me and Russ started a podcast recently. All right. Uh, uh, plug it. What is it? Good, Russ told Oh, it's uh, Stoned Alchemy is the name of the, po- the podcast. Excuse me. <laughs> Stoned <laughs> Alchemy is the name of the podcast. And uh, we do it every couple of weeks. It's primarily we do original stories we pick a topic and we do an original story kind of about the topic and we just discuss it it's it's a lot of fun it's it's a it's a variety of subjects uh, yeah this really runs the gamut it, it's really all over the place like we did one on ufos and uh we each told a, an original fictional tale mm-hmm. uh but one russ was about an experience we had in the woods and then I did a, a goofy one about a, a, a UFO pilot who's a, a truck driver who's abducted by UFOs to to to, to gather food for this crazy intergalactic dictator. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And then we chatted and we chatted for about maybe what Russ about forty five minutes on discussing yeah. the topic of UFOs and quite a we, bit. All, all different subject matter. This this next episode we're going to be doing is a Halloween theme as well. And uh, we'll be we'll be uh, there'll be a couple of original stories and then just mm. chatting about old school Halloween versus modern day Halloween, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. 
very spooky. Especially now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting times. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a bucket of candy and a slingshot ready just to pelt it at the kids. There, there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, Throw those circus peanuts at them. <laughs> it's all they're good for, anyway. Away. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, uh, the, this uh, documentary centers on the uh, Chiller uh, Convention, uh, which was in 2000. Uh, what inspired you to uh, decide to capture this event on film? Well, I originally had gone to it a couple of times with a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, of me and Russ, uh, Craig Lindbergh, who's a special effects makeup artist. And he's a huge horror fan, horror filmmaker, well, effects makeup artist. And now he's a total professional working on Saturday Night Live and a lot of different TV shows. Mm-hmm. But he brought he was- me to it the first time, and we I just loved – I was never a huge horror fan per se, but when I went to this convention, I, I just r- was really taken by the people. They were just the coolest, nicest bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And it's a bizarre uh, you know, topic, you know, uh, different categories of, of not just horror but also uh, nostalgia and comic books and science fiction. So then I talked to Russ. And I said, you know, because we wanted, we were thinking about doing a project together. And I said, you know, this might be an interesting documentary. So, get yeah, Russ, take it from. from yeah, it, it was like I said, Craig Lindbergh suggested it, and he's been nominated for three Emmys, by the way. Um, he's, right. he's a brilliant artist, and he, he's a fun guy. And he told us about this thing. And and I was never a huge fan of the of of like the horror genre. Although my uncle made me watch all the movies as a kid, and I got into it. And you know. It kind of piqued my interest, so we decided to go, and it was just incredible. It was like discovering this whole world of these wonderful, fun people, and they're all just doing their thing, just having a great time. And it was, like Mike said, it's it's uh, science fiction horror, the old school horror, the new school, like the slasher, the slasher films, that kind of stuff. And it was a great mix of people just having a great time together. We spent three days at the hotel there. It was yeah. We went to the party, the, the costume party, uh, and, and they had bands like the Dead Elvi. Mackenzie, have you ever heard of the Dead Elvi? They're a great, great I band. No, but oh, Google Creature Stole My Surfboard. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's it's like campy fun. It's total it's, camp. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, all- we had a great time just meeting a lot of. A lot of old school celebrities and some new school ones, like from the slasher films, like Roxanne Michaels and a few other people. And it was a great comparison of, of like what people, yeah, what people liked. And like Mike said, that there were the toys that were there, even like wacky pack stickers, if anyone remembers those things, um, T-shirts, that kind of stuff. Models, but, a lot of model, model kits, but, and but to meet some of the celebrities was really, really cool, kind of cool. We had so many great conversations with, uh, was it like Ben Chapman, who was creature from the Black Lagoon, McCarthy, and, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, and they all shared their insights, and they were really generous. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, and the yeah. funny, oh sorry, go ahead. Well, no, just the funny thing is, what I remember, I had never done anything like this before, like an interview documentary type thing. So I remember early on, just before we were ready to do it, I went on the website, and I think Russ, you'll remember this. And I, and I, they, there were subcategories on their threads uh, on the website, and for each, you know, area of of interest. So I went to each one and I posted, if you want to do an interview for this documentary, please, you know, contact me. And I did it for the horror section, for the science fiction section, for the toy section. And then Kevin, the guy who ran the convention, contacts me and goes, why are you spamming my my website? And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't mean to do that. So I I told Russ and Russ goes, well, yeah, you kind of did spam it. (laughs) So so I, I went and I raced everything and I apologized to Kevin. 
And he was like, all right. He says, you don't have to do it. He says, just go there and talk to people. Like, trust me, they'll talk to you. And boy, did they. Everyone wanted to yeah. speak to us, right? Yeah. No one, I don't think anyone did. said no except who? Well, actually, you know, uh, well, well, Sarah Karloff was, was one. Oh, comes she's up another right. one. Oh, okay. she's That's Boris, Boris Karloff's daughter. Um, but uh, who are you thinking of? Savino, the, the special effects makeup. Oh, artist. Savino, right. Is it yeah. Savino, is that his name? Yeah. He was sort of snooty. But other than that, everyone was just very willing to just tell their tales. Uh, well, some, on some a bit more than we needed. We yeah. would go... Um, Ben Chapman, we must have hours of him talking about <laughs> stuff. He, he's such a great guy. He was oh, such a nice great. person. And uh, they were all, it, it was a great, it was a, so, it was just so much fun. And we did this in, was it, it was a 2000, wasn't it? 2000. So it's the 20th anniversary of this, of this uh, yeah. film. Yeah. And we, uh, I remember Forrest Ackerman. He was a, no, oh, yeah. Forrest Ackerman was interesting. Um, he uh, shared some of his stories. Being the he, kid, yeah. Yeah, um, he used to write a lot of magazine articles. A lot of people know him. Um, I'm not sure if they called him the godfather of, of science fiction horror magazines, that kind of stuff. But uh, he's a big inspiration for a lot of people who are into this because he wrote a lot of stuff about science fiction magazines like in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I remember, kind of saying, he remember saying, these magazines spoke to me. In October 1926, I was standing in front of a magazine stand at a publication called Amazing Stories. Jumped off the stand, grabbed hold of me, and you're too young to know, but magazine spoke in those days, and that one said, take me home, little boy, you will love me. And in the unimaginably distant year of 2000, you will find yourself being interviewed at something called Chiller Coffee. Amazing stories, yeah, that was the one. Amazing stories. Amazing stories, yes. And he had he had the ring, I believe, that Bela Lugosi used in Dracula. Uh, yes, he actually yeah. had the ring in it, and uh, I thought that was kind of cool. It was it was so much fun. We had a blast. Yeah, it was actually cool seeing David F. Friedman, uh, just uh, one of the insane minds who worked with oh, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. That, yep, that Herschel cool. Gordon Lewis. Yeah, that gore fest that they did. I walked away from a pretty good job at Paramount to go into business with Kroger. Later, I moved out to the West. Well, then. I met a young man named Herschel Gordon Lewis who came into my office one day and says, I'm going to make a picture. I says, here, kid, take a number. He says, you don't understand. I've got the money. I said, sit down. <laughs> and out of that little association came Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, Color Me, Blood Red. Uh, these were Blood Feast, particularly, was the first slasher film. And that's I couldn't find the name of the one actor, though, the one hyperactive one with the long hair and the mustache. The, the guy oh, oh Wink. John Wink. <laughs> yes, John Wink. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a good horror actor. Yeah, they won't want me to be in their movies. Watch Captain Video then. I was five, six years old. And I was a fan since then. Yeah, this guy has and to be And I'm, I'm an actor now. I'm in movies. This guy has to be a good friend and of mine. And this is Conrad Brooks, star of Plan 9 from Outer Space. And uh, a hundred fun movies. Ambrose Sy says we can move in right away. Good. Very good, Johnny. Very good. <laughs> and who was his partner? Uh, he was like, yeah, Johnny, yeah. Oh, Johnny. yeah, Johnny, the guy from... Uh, uh, Plan 9. Yeah. Conrad. Conrad. Conrad uh, Brooks. Conrad Brooks. Brooks. That's yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he was a cat. Oh, we we would had so much fun editing uh, his his stuff because we just were dying laughing. He was, well, he would just pop in. We, if we were interviewing Link. Oh yeah, right. Conrad would just show up and just break into the scene. You know, he would do weird stuff like that. Uh, 
yeah, it was cool. And uh, I understand that the, at least the basis of the convention was almost paying homage to Zachary, at least for that year. And oh yeah, what are your experiences with the horror host culture? Like, were there any ones that you can remember as a kid watching growing up? Uh, I don't, I don't recall Zachary really. The one I, uh, you, you know, it's funny. The, the, as a horror host, I don't remember. I just remember the host of the Little Rascals show and the host for Popeye the Sailor. Remember, there was the uh, the cop who introduced the Little Rascals show on TV. And then there was like a captain who did Popeye, the Popeye cartoons as host. I don't uh, know, maybe Mackenzie, you're, do, you, do you have familiar? I'm sure you do because I know you're much more of a horror f- a fan than I think either Russ and I. Uh, but how about Russ? Russ, do you have any recollections of? of not exactly. I'm not sure if it was on in New York City or if it was a local channel someplace else. I remember Chilla Theater oh, with the, the six fingered sure. hand. Yep. But. Uh, it could have been it was before our time because he was doing this in the 60s and early 70s and maybe we were just too maybe young, just a little bit too young. We were like four or five years old at the time so yeah. um, we couldn't do it though. But everyone else seemed to have known him uh, really well and there's a lot of video on him on YouTube it's, and him yeah. talking. He I was a DJ Elvira. too. Elvira, I remember a bit. She, she used to do some the hosting of some... She of would introduce some of the show, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, and uh, for me, Zachary, I just can't help but think of uh, Frank Hennen Lauder's brain damage. That's that's where I remember Zachary the most because he's the, he's the voice of the brain parasite in that film. Ah. It's just <laughs> it's just a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> performance. Why are the stars always winking and blinking above? What makes a fella start thinking of falling in love? It's not the season. The reason is plain as a moon. It's just Elmer's tune. What makes a lady of eighty go out on the loose? Why does a gander meander in search of a goose? What puts the kick in a chicken? The magic in June. It's just Elmer's tune. Listen. Hardison, there's a lot you're liable to be missing. Sing it, swing it, any old way and any old time. The hurdy gurdies, the birdies, the cop on the beat, the candy maker, the baker. The man on the street, the city charmer, the farmer, the man on the moon, all sing Elmer's tune. He has a great voice. He sang, too. He sang uh, Monster Mash uh, live at the party uh, at the Chillicon. Yeah. Uh, That that should be, I think that's in in the dock. A little bit of that is in in the dock. yeah, he was. He had to tell the story about waiting in the car in the cold and waiting for him to come out to do his do his number. You remember he tells that story in in, in the dog in the chilla dog. <laughs> uh, Why do you think it is that horror host culture has just suddenly exploded again uh, after I guess uh, decades or so of lying dormant? Because uh, Joe Bob Briggs is back, and mm-hmm. you can go online on YouTube and just do a type search of horror host, and you've got tons of YouTubers who are kind of picking up that mantle of doing their own horror hosts. Oh, I, I think it's I think it's nostalgia. I think people are just sort of hungry for a simpler time, especially now. So I think yeah. there's nostalgia. There's, there's like a, a wave, a resurgence of nostalgia. I mean, that's why I. I mean, I, I think the, the Stoops of Atlantis is, is ringing a bell because I think it's. Uh, it's it's all about nostalgia. So people love nostalgia, and and uh, 
it's also a, it's a it's a, a bit of escapism into that nostalgic world sure. where you, you know you even though you're watching maybe someone getting slashed or crushed or, or electrocuted or something like that it's good, it clean, takes fun. you away from the cur- good clean fun it takes you away from the world around us i think that's what a lot of the soul is it's fun just and it's also a, a, also another sense of i think a certain generation doesn't want to grow up um, i think there's a bit of a, a bit of that as well um which I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's there's sort of a reluctance to to leave our childhood, and uh, nostalgia is a great way to go back to it. Yeah, the thing I have to compliment your uh, documentary on is how it presents the subject matter and the people in it, because you had uh, Bruce Campbell's own documentary, Fanalysis, which came out in 2002. Uh, you also have the documentary for Troll 2, uh, which was uh, Best Worst Movie. And the way they present the horror fandom is in a very acerbic uh, sarcastic manner, and yet you brought a, a sense of sincerity to it. That was oh, absolutely. yeah, that was absolutely yeah. That was the point. I, like I did yeah. not want to make fun of them. I wanted to almost honor them because I, both Russ and I, I, I had gone to it a couple of times before we shot this, and again, that was what really struck me was how nice the people were, and not only how nice, but how like open they are to just different, you know, a, a, a diversity of people. There was a, I remember there was one fan who was there every year. And he was a burn victim, and he was oh, he was really, really badly burned. His face, his head, mm-hmm. total deformity. And you could tell he felt at home there. He didn't feel like people were looking at him like a freak. Uh, he like he, I, I bet that's one of the few places where he felt very comfortable to walk around as judged. himself. You're not being judged. Not no judgments there. Yeah, yeah. you're right. And uh, you could be who you want to be there. No one's going to criticize you or, or make fun of you or, or point to you and say loser or something like exactly. that. Exactly. It's. Uh, it was great. Uh, people were very open about that. And the goth people who were like, you know, they always portray themselves as these dark, brooding types. They were especially nice. Uh, they, those tend to be especially nice people. So it, it was really a, a mind opening and, and a, a really nice, just a good, you walked out of, you couldn't walk out of that place not feeling good about the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We went, after doing that for three days, we were so happy um, for the experience of meeting all these people and just being part of this and, and seeing how, how wonderful they were. It was, it was so cool. And you also let the subject speak for themselves. Like you just removed your voices altogether yes. from the documentary and just let yeah. them speak for themselves. And that, that to me is another highlight of uh, the documentary. Well, thank um, you. That's, that was our intent. Uh, yes. Absolutely. So just let them speak, let them, let them tell the story. We don't have to say anything. We just show it. Yeah. A current pandemic aside, what do you feel is lacking from the current crop of conventions, whether it's San Diego or New York? Uh, do you think they've gotten too big? Well, I was at Comic-Con mm-hmm. the last couple of years, and uh, I love Comic-Con. Uh, it's, yeah, it's jam-packed, but I, is it too big? I don't know. Uh, Chiller was getting really big as well. In fact, they had to move Chiller to another. They moved it out of the Sheridan. They moved it further north in Jersey. I don't remember exactly what town, but to a bigger location. Uh but for, as for Comic-Con, I'd never been to San Diego Comic-Con, but yeah, the New York one is huge. And um, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> I've, uh, I guess you know, the commercial, it's become very commercialized over the years, but it's pretty much the same old stuff, though. People go to have a lot of fun and just uh, share their interest. It's, uh, even if there's a lot of big studio influences now or you know, big money going into it, you know, the small stuff is still there that makes it really special, I think. 
any chances of a physical release for this documentary? Because I'm a physical media person myself, and mm-hmm. this is something I would love to have in my collection. Is there any chance that this might come to like a DVD in the future? Well, we have a couple of cases of VHS tape versions of it. If you want one, I'll be happy, we're happy to send you one. We've talked about it. We just have to master it and get it, put, get it into better shape. Uh, and we're working on that. We're actually Yeah, we are. Uh, where can people find the documentary online? Well, uh, you, well, YouTube. Uh, well, we can send you a link if you have a website. We I, we could send you the link. The post link. Yeah. If it's you just on go YouTube to YouTube for free, we're just we're just out. It's out there for free for people yeah. to watch. If you just go to YouTube and type uh, "peace, love, gore," it'll be the first thing that pops up. Oh, yeah, I definitely have a link for it in the description for this episode. I, I highly recommend it. It's a it's a nice time capsule of a what feels like a bygone era. Yeah. yeah well, uh, it's funny. That's something else me and Russ were discussing a lot, and we're going to discuss it in our next uh, podcast, our next uh, Stoned Alchemy episode, is this was a pre-9-11 uh, event. And the world changed, obviously, after 9-11, but not for the better. Uh, it, 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 there was a sense of real freedom that you got uh, pre-9-11, especially at this convention. You sensed this sense of fun and freedom. After that, in fact, when we went back to sell the tapes the following year, it was post-9-11. And you could sense a difference in the atmosphere. Yeah, uh, a bit of oppressive something. Paranoia or yeah. like, yeah, this paranoia. Well, a sense of like overall security and, and, and it just didn't have that sense of free flow fun and that it had prior. And I, I think the whole world suffered uh, in that same way, this obsession with security and uh, to, a, to a fault. And, that, and this captured, I think that documentary recaptures that pre-9-11 Yeah, in fact. Uh, one of the actresses, Brink Stevens, uh, one of the, it's in the Chiller doc. She talks about this. She has a, like, I can't quote it verbatim, but she has a gut feeling that, you know, the pendulum is swinging and it's yes, going to swing. Yes, she did say that. And it's going to swing the other way. And and she was right. It's it, it's pretty uncanny. Uh, but things have changed so much. Maybe it'll change Maybe we'll have a new renaissance soon. I, I don't know. I, I hope so. I hope so. But, uh, but things definitely changed after 9-11. And now it, it, it's, it's been a couple of decades now with the pandemic. It's, I don't know. Uh, I think. How will conventions work now? You know, until there's yeah, like a vaccine, gonna you know, how are you going to have crowded convention conventions? Which is sad uh, that these things are not going to be able to People uh, take to place, at least not for a little while. At least not in New York, because I remember seeing a couple of uh, pictures from uh, Diana Prince, uh, you know, uh, Darcy the Mail Girl. Uh, she was actually at a convention this past weekend for Days of the Dead, and they, they got the social distancing. I guess they had to strictly limit the number of people they could let in at one time. But no, What city was that? Uh, this was in Texas. Texas, okay. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, some uh, yeah, places yeah. are opening. I mean, they're allowing a much more limited number of people in and the social distancing people are trying people are doing their best under what we have to work with so but uh i just know once this is all over we're going to be uh, running around like uh like a new renaissance like i said i think it's going to make people want to be out and more social yeah, well, and, the and find more interest and be more together and do things definitely the roaring 20s followed the pandemic of 1918 so yeah just keep uh, that in mind uh, that was uh, this is a really fun discussion on uh, your documentary, and I'm, I hope uh, I highly encourage people to check this out because it was a lot of fun. Uh, where can people find you uh, too on social media? Well, I'm on I'm, I'm like my I'm on Facebook, the Stoops of Atlantis uh, Facebook page. Uh, my Rupert's Adventures of Rupert Starbright novels on Amazon, uh, but Facebook is the easiest place to, to get me, Mike Mike Deserto. 
and uh, I'm on I'm on anti-social media, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, you're Twitter, you tweet. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I won't be giving that at though. Uh, sorry. Oh no, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I know. I know uh, some people. Uh, I know opinions can uh, uh, can clash heavily on that platform. So yeah, I, I don't blame you for that. Yeah, the Twitter, the Twitter gods, cheese. It's, uh, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> uh, things. Well, all social media is kind of a little. It's kind of a little hairy. It's it's, it's 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 bad. It's it's really bad. I I I, I avoided Facebook for a little while. I. I I go on now just to just either post funny stuff or promote something, but I, I try really try to avoid any like these constant political battles, and, and I get annoyed at both sides equally. Uh, Mackenzie, you've seen my posts, like, oh, yeah. so does you know I, I'll, I'll you know the left and the right drive me nuts. So it's, yeah, we're in a weird time right now. This is a strange time. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it was a fun revisiting this documentary and just being able to see how it all came together so well. Uh, thank you so much. It was well, a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we enjoyed it, and I uh, hope everyone gives it a, give it a watch. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a good. It's a, it's a quick hour. As the interview mentioned, I'll have a link to Chiller Three Days of Peace, Love, and Gore in the description below. Paramount Pictures and Mecca the Movies have got a Halloween treat for you: the terrifying suspense thriller Spell, starring Amari Hardwick from the TV show Power and Loretta Devine is premiering at home today. Marquis, played by Omari Hardwick, awakens from a plane crash imprisoned by a mysterious woman practicing hoodoo magic. He desperately tries to break free to save his family from the sinister rituals that await. Buy or rent Spell on digital today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. I have five digital copies to give away. I will have a social media post on my Facebook page for Spell. All you have to do is like the post. To double your chances of winning, tell me your favorite practitioner of the dark arts on film and the replies to the post. The winners will be announced on Friday, November 6th. Best of luck. And that wraps up this Halloween edition for Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. On Friday, November 13th, we will be taking a look at the low-budget cult classics of director Ray Dennis Steckler. Films on the docket include Wild Guitar, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed-Up Zombies, The Thrill Killers, and Rat Finkaboo-Boo. If you enjoy this content and would like to see the program grow, feel free to offer a one-time donation via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. For $1.99 a month, you can join my Subscribestar to help guide the creative direction of the show. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have my BitChute channel. All of that in the description box below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Making the Movies. Take care and have a great Halloween. Mm-hmm.